All right, well, thank you, worship team and congregation for singing praises to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again as we begin. Father, we are in this moment aware of the fact that there are things that we can do. There are songs we can play. There are religious acts and rituals that we can perform. We can open up and read and, and think about your word, but we need your spirit and your power to be at work in all of those things. Lord, we ask that you would do the part that only you can do to uh, quicken and make alive a spirit to work and will in us to do whatever you would have us to do. So I pray that you would be at work in this place, in this hour, and that you would change us and help us open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see truth as we open your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're at. And, uh, you know, when someone says the phrase that um, this is a matter of life and death, what do they mean? It's a matter of life and death. That means stop. This is something of the utmost importance. And we're studying in the book of Philippians things that are of the utmost importance and especially an eye towards joy. Joy. Now, that seems like something that's just icing on the cake. But really, it is of the utmost importance in our lives. And in the book of Philippians, the Bible would not have us just to have this fleeting, temporal, circumstantial joy, but to have true, abiding, lasting peace and joy of the soul that comes from God and from being united with him, the Bible would have us to have joy in matters of life and death. I would say to you that joy is a matter of life and death. A little review for you. We've been in the book of Philippians for a couple of weeks now. And one of the first things that we discovered when we opened up this book together was that there is a twofold piece or description of the Christian identity. The Christian identity. Can anyone tell me what the two words, phrases, descriptors of the Christian are based in Philippians chapter 1? Can anybody tell me? Y'all are making us get out of here late, not me. <laughs> huh? Philippians 1, 1. Here they are. You need these. You all fail. Servants of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I am a bond servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. And, and we think that's just a little uh, fancy introduction, but we need to latch on to that. We are servants. And then he writes to the church at Philippi, and he says, to all the saints, servants and saints in Jesus. And we said that our sense of identity is so important. This, this is the core of our life or reality. We often don't even know that this is happening, that it's there, but it is there, our identity. It is the place out of which we live and make decisions and prioritize things and orient our entire life. And we have this piece called the soul. The soul works to integrate 
or to sync up all the things in our lives according to this core piece in our heart that is our identity. And everybody has a sense of identity. You may not be clear about it, but I think the Bible wants us to be very clear about it. I would say to you that when we don't have a fully clear-minded sense of our Christian identity that we cannot or will not have a stable, lasting sense of joy. An abiding Christian joy in matters of life and death will not be there if we're not aware of our Christian identity. One of the other words, you know, you, you study through a book of the Bible and you find these repetitive themes and joy is one of the big ones in Philippians. Well, I found another this week. It is think. He's calling us to think about things clearly as Christians. And so we want to think so as to have this kind of joy. And it's so good that we have examples. You know, one of the ways that we learn how we should live and what life should look like is by models and role models. And of course, as Christians, Jesus is our ultimate example of a life of abiding joy. But we have other examples. We have, for instance, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to peer into his life today. The Philippian church wanted to know, inquired of this man, this apostle. He was not a perfect man by any means, but he was a mature Christian who seemed to have this abiding joy in matters of life and matters of death. Paul is such a man. And honestly, Paul writes and he says, you know, follow me and my example as I follow the example of Christ. And it is true that all of us are supposed to attain to this kind of Christian maturity, such as Jesus had perfectly, and even the Apostle Paul. And hopefully you have people in your life. Hopefully you will become that person in someone else's life that models joy in life and in death matters. I want to encourage you to do something this week. How many of y'all look, look down at Philippians 1.21? How many of y'all, that's our one verse today. How many of y'all have that memorized? I want to encourage you to memorize Philippians 1.21. It is one of those verses here when I read it, you're going to know, oh yeah, I know that verse. I know that verse. I want you to commit it to memory, but not just to memorize it, but to hover over it and around it all week long. That's what I've been doing. And I tell you, it is so meaningful to take the word of God and dwell on it and chew on it and meditate on it and to think about how it applies, how it can be your reality. So here is our one verse for today that we're going to study. And it is a pivotal verse. It's a mountain peak verse in the book of Philippians. And it is this, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul writes that. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Remember the context of this letter as we prepare to consider those three phrases in this verse. The Philippian church was full of people who were experiencing anxiety, fearfulness, turmoil, and trouble. That's why they have sent Epaphroditus with a letter, with an offering, with some questions. Help us. Help us. We're in trouble. They are frightened. They are unsure about their future because of what's going on, probably the persecution that's all around them. 
And it has surfaced fissures in their fellowship. That is, it has exposed major cracks in their Christian foundation. And they seem to be widening. And possibly some of the folks in Philippi are wondering, I don't, can I do this? I don't know that I can face what's coming at us in a Christian way. I'm not sure I can endure in the midst of what appears to be coming. And Paul writes to comfort and to counsel them from a prison cell, no less, about having abiding joy. He seeks to shed light on their situation and help them to grab hold of these Christian realities to lead them to a place of inner hope and hopefulness and gladness. And last week, we saw some of the beginnings of that, how he began to write and he says, you know, I want you to know about my circumstances, how my imprisonment has actually turned out for the spread of the gospel. So he begins to look and says, how is God at work in this hard situation where I'm stuck in prison, where I'm chained to a guard all day long? God is actually uniquely at work. And I think that when we look at our lives, even in hard situations, especially in the midst of a hard situation, what we will find is much like Paul, that God is actually visibly, uniquely, specially at work in that situation in a way that he could not have done otherwise. And so he's uniquely at work. And Paul says, not only that, actually, because of my imprisonment, the Christians around here, they're not growing sheepish. They're growing bold, and they are sharing the gospel because they see that even in prison, man, they can't steal your freedom. You can still shine your light for Christ no matter what happens. And so other Christians are becoming bold. He writes back to the church at Philippi, and he makes a conscious decision. I'm recounting this because some of y'all were not here. Some of y'all were sleeping last week, right? These are the points from last week's sermon. He says, I make a conscious decision to rejoice. In this, I will rejoice. You know, there is always something in a hard situation that we can rejoice in. He says, so I'm going to look at that and see what God is doing rather than wallowing in self-pity. I'm going to rejoice And then Philippians 1, verse 18, takes a turn. He is rejoicing and he's very hopeful, but he says, also in this I will rejoice. And he begins to talk about how it's very possible that he's going to die because of his faith there in that prison. There has been a death sentence talked about. Very likely he could lose his life. And, and, And you can tell he's struggling. He's grappling with this. Man, I have joy in all that God's doing now, but, but I'm going to continue to rejoice. Again, the conscious decision to trust God in daunting circumstances, even facing this sword, he says, and I will rejoice. All the way to the gallows, all the way to the noose, all the way to the firing line, I will continue to rejoice. Man, how do you do that? What's the root of that? How do you become that? I want to be that. I want to have that kind of joy in life and even in the grimmest of prospects. Don't you? And it can be yours. There are Christians today. There are Christians in this room who exhibit this kind of sturdy, enduring, irrepressible joy in life and in death. And that's what we need. That's what we want. But I would ask you this. What about you? What about us? Do we have that? Or are we like the Philippians? We're struggling And joy has flown away like a frightened bird from our lives. Do we have that kind of integrity to live our faith all the way out 
to the end, even when it takes us into the shadows in the valley of death, irrepressible joy. And so today and in the weeks to come, that's what I want us to lay hold of. And I would say this is something we need. One of the great uh, uh, little one-liners has been rolling around in my mind out of a book that I read. He says, joy is the jet fuel of our lives. Joy is the jet fuel, the motivation. It's the thing that drives us. There's a lot of things that can drive us. Fear can drive us for a while. Giddiness can drive us. But joy is this jet fuel that will propel us and keep us moving forward. So let's look at these three verses and consider them for a few moments each from Philippians 1.21. He says, for to me. I actually had, had forgotten that part. I don't know that I ever memorized that part of Philippians 1.21. For to me. This is highly personal to Paul. It's easy to principalize all these things and forget that this is a personal reality. He says, for to me, we're peering into the very portal of the soul, the heart, the mind of the apostle Paul, into this one that has this abiding, enduring joy. And he says, for me, to live is Christ. How would you fill in that blank? For me, right now, in my life, if you're honest, to live is blank. What would you put in that blank? What are you living for? What is your sense of the thing that is most valuable, that your life is all about? This is the road I'm on. This is the goal. This is the trophy. This is the thing that I think life is all about. For me, to live is blank. And to die, he says, is gain. What about us? And I think he wants us to see the thing that the mature Christian is to live for with integrity and fullness of life. For to me, let's consider Paul's story for just a minute because he wasn't born this way. He didn't get here overnight. He had a story, a testimony. He had hard things in his life. He had life changes. And if you flip back to Acts chapter 7, you actually are introduced to this guy. Acts chapter 7 in verse 58. There's a guy named Stephen who's a Christian and he's about to be stoned to death. And he's giving one of the best sermons and, 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 and talks about how Jesus is the Messiah and how uh, the history of God's redemptive plan, and he's laying all of that out. He's given this sermon that spans quite a few verses. And the Jews who hate Jesus, they don't like this Jesus movement. They stand against it. They're trying to squash it. It's the Pharisees and the scribes and those in religious power there in Jerusalem in that day, the ruling Jews, they're trying to continue to squash this Jesus movement. They thought they had done it when they killed Jesus, but he got up out of the grave. He came out of the tomb, and all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit comes and emboldens all of his followers, this movement is blowing up, and they're trying to stop it. And this guy, Stephen, gives this amazing sermon, and he gets to the end of it. Having explained that Jesus is the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that you must trust to have eternal life, and they get angry and their jaws are clenching and, and they're hollering and they're going to stone him, okay? And so when you get ready to stone somebody, I suspect, I don't know, I've, I've thrown rocks at people, but I've never, I've never tried to stone someone. You take off your coat and your robe and you get ready to pitch, and they took their robes and their outer coats so that they could hurl the stones with all the force that they could muster at 
this Christian named Stephen, and they lay their coats and robes at the feet, it says in verse 58, of a young man named Saul. A young man named Saul. Then it continues on in Acts chapter 8. And it says that this guy saw this young man that everybody's late. He's the, he's the keeper of the coach. You, you almost get the impression maybe he's the one who's calling the shots. He's the coach here. He's not the one doing the stone throwing, but he's the one that is directing the plays. And he's watching there over the coats in the dugout. And they're, they kill Stephen. And it says in Acts 8.1, that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So don't, don't get the idea that it's possible that he's just standing by trying to figure things out. No, he is giving hearty agreement to putting Stephen to death on that day. And it says, and on that day that Stephen was killed, as Paul is directing the shots and giving hearty agreement that this is what we should do, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem that Day. That's what it says against the church, against the Christians there in Jerusalem. And here's what it says about this guy named Saul, this young man. It says Saul was ravaging the church and Christians from house to house, dragging women and men to jail. I don't know about you, but when I think about the words ravaging people's houses and dragging them, I think about a violent act. Possibly by the hair of their head. We don't know, but Paul drags these people out of their houses and places where the Christians would gather and took them to jail. This young man, Saul, is one and the same, you know, as the Apostle Paul, who now writes this letter before he was converted to Christ. Not only was Saul slash Paul not a joyful person, he wasn't just a melancholy. He was an angry, violent killer. That's what he was, all in the name of religion. That's what he was. Doesn't, doesn't speak of a guy with an inner peace or calm. He was an angry, violent, terrorist persecutor. All right? But Saul's story doesn't end there. He doesn't continue on that path. And in Acts chapter 9, in verse 1... Actually, he does continue for a little while. It says that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He even went to the high priest and he got letters so that he could move his war party out of Jerusalem and go to other places where these Christians were fleeing and preaching the name of Jesus. And so he gets letters from the high priest. He's breathing out murderous threats. Do you hear this? Not a man of peace. And he gets letters to go to Damascus, where apparently the Christians have set up shop, and this now has become a center of the movement. And so he gets a letter from the high priest. He gets authority to arrest and extradite anybody who is preaching this name of Jesus. And so he heads out with his war party to a place called Damascus. And along the Damascus road, just before he gets to Damascus, something amazing happens. And you can find it there in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Something happens, something amazing, something transformative and truly as life-changing as something can be. It says a light flashes from heaven. In recoiling from that light, or maybe the light knocked him down, it, it actually blinded him. We don't know. Was he on a horse? Was he on a mule? You know, but but he, that light knocks him to the ground or sends him to the ground. And it's not just a light, but he hears a voice. 
And this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I wonder if he thinks it's the angel of Stephen. But he doesn't know whose voice it is. Who is me? And he says, Lord, who are you? Lord, who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. You're not just persecuting people. You're persecuting the risen Lord Jesus. And he says, I want you to get up and I want you to go into that city of Damascus. He'd lost his sight. And he staggers into the city and he goes into a house and he begins praying fervently. I don't know what you think you would do if you're slapped off your horse, blinded by a light, truly blinded. You're hearing voices from heaven saying that it's Jesus. You'd hide out. I suspect you would pray. You wouldn't know what in the world had hit you. And Saul goes into a house. And the Lord sends a man named Ananias. He said, I want you to go to a street called Straight. And I want you to go into such and such's house. And I want you to ask for this guy, Saul. And Ananias is like, say what? We've, we've heard about this guy, Saul. I, I don't really want any part of him. And the Lord tells Ananias, he says, actually, this guy is going to be shown how much he will suffer for my sake. But he's going, he says, he's going to be my chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles and to the sheep of Israel and even to speak before kings. And so Ananias gets up, he goes to a street called Straight, and he goes to and asks for this guy named Saul, and he goes back, and Saul is praying, probably crying, probably shaking in his boots, not knowing what in the world has hit him. And Ananias comes and speaks the word of the Lord to him and lays his hands on him, and he regains his sight. He says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's subsequently baptized. He has faith. Paul, Saul, has come to the point where he had heard about Jesus in Stephen's sermon. He had heard about as clear a logical, biblical explanation of Jesus at the stoning of Stephen and rejected it. But the Lord Jesus comes and enters and intersects his life. And he comes to faith. And his life is radically, truly transformed. He's born again. He becomes, folks, a brand new person. He's converted to Jesus He's born again by the power of God. And I think it's hard to imagine a more um, radical transformation than this guy. From a murderous, angry, threat-breathing, fire-breathing terrorist to a fearful, quaking soul who now bows the knee and humbles himself before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Paul gets his sight, and he's a brand new man. He's full of the Holy Spirit, it says. And so he actually goes into the synagogue of Damascus, the place that he had intended to go all along and arrest people and persecute people, and now he goes in preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And nobody knows what to do with this. The Jews decide, you know what, this guy has flipped his lid, lost his mind. All of his learning has made him mad. Something's happened. We need to kill this guy. The Christians want nothing to do with him because they think it's a ploy to find out, get in the inner circle. Nobody wants anything to do with Paul, but he continues to preach Christ. His entire, listen to me, disposition and goals, his very sense of identity 
was changed. He becomes a brand new man. Man, that's what being saved is. Now, I suspect probably none of you nor I have a conversion story quite that radical. There was no horse involved in mine. No blinding light. No audible voice from heaven, though I would say when I was converted to Christ, there was a voice from heaven coming through the word of God and the words of Jesus. But I'll tell you, it was a radical change. A sermon explaining things that I had grown up hearing over and over. All of a sudden, when God intervened into my heart, it changed. I changed. My identity changed. Lane Nelson probably looked like the same young man that you've seen week in and week out. But having come to Christ, I can tell you the reality is that he has changed. He's a brand new man on the inside. And those baptismal waters are saying, man, I'm, I, I, I'm joining my life to Christ. This crucified Savior who is raised to life. And just as Jesus was buried in a tomb and raised to life, when we go through baptism, we say, I'm with him. And we go through those waters and, and we're lowered down. It's a baptism into death. It says the, the old is gone. The old person who used to chase after this and seek money and power and status and, 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 and religious rank or whatever it is that you filled in your blank with, that guy's gone. That lady doesn't exist anymore. I'm dead to that. But I'm alive because of Christ and in Christ. A brand new person. That is conversion. And so that gets us to the second part of this verse. Paul says, for me, this changed guy who came to Christ in such a radical way for me to live is Christ. What does it mean for me to live as Christ? It means that's what I'm about. That's what life is ultimately about, and every other thing is subordinate to that. It comes under that. That is my sense of identity. Servant of Christ, right? Servant of Christ, saint in Christ. To be a servant of Christ is to, is to say, whatever he has me to do, whatever he calls me to, he calls the shots. You know, discipleship is not just baptizing people. The Great Commission says, go and make disciples of Christ. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's a life of following Jesus. And so Paul says, that's what I'm about. I'm not persecuting Jesus. I'm taking Jesus everywhere I go. Prison bars could not lock out joy because his identity was not in his freedom as a world traveler. His identity was, I serve Jesus. That's what I do. And so I can serve Jesus in jail. He says, I even see that happening. I see Jesus doing a work in jail. For me to live is Christ, a slave and a servant, dead to the world, dead to the old self, dead to the things of the world. I'm dead to that, but I'm alive in Christ and because of Christ. And his energies and his resources and his ambitions were about one thing, making Christ known. Previously, I truly believed that what Paul was all about was making himself known. Exalting his name. And he says, now I live to make the name of Jesus 
glorious and known. So he says, if I am to go on living, well, very good. Very good. Because I live as a servant of Jesus to make him known. Matt Chandler in his little book about Philippians says this, it's astounding to consider the level at which Paul regards his life as a sacrifice. He sees imprisonment as a sacrifice necessary to make the rest of the brothers bold in sharing the gospel. His trials and sacrifices are necessary to win the loss to Christ. Paul appears ready and willing to trade away his security, his rights, his conveniences, and his comforts for others to know Christ. This is not the kind of Christianity any of us end up with except through a profound experience of Christ's cross applied to our life. That is rooted in a conversion where we're radically saved and transformed. That's where it comes from. And so having this joy in Jesus, in life, it begins with a conversion to Christ, a new identity as a servant of Jesus. Man, it's a high and holy calling and purpose to live as a servant of Jesus. And you can be a servant of Jesus in your home. Actually, that's the first place we're supposed to be, a servant of Jesus. And you can be a servant of Jesus in your job, in any job. You can be a servant of Jesus in your family, among your extended family. You can even serve Jesus at a family reunion, though it's pretty difficult. You are an ambassador of the King of glory anywhere and everywhere you go, and that never changes. You can be in chains. Your name can be drugged through the mud, and you are an ambassador of Christ. That's what you are. That's what you do in this life. In this church, you are an ambassador of Jesus. You are gifted by the Holy Spirit and given a place, as we studied on Wednesday night, you are given a portion of faith, a place at the table, a unique and important spot to help build up the body of Christ. You serve him in building up others. That is such an important task. Even in the smallest and most mundane things in your life, did you know that you can glorify Christ? The Bible says this, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all for the glory of Christ. On the golf course, on the ball diamond, at the gym, wherever you go, glorify Christ. In the smallest things and the biggest things, it's all the same. It's all about serving the Lord Jesus. And we need to get to this one fairly quickly. And this is where we're going to actually pick up next week. And again, I told you, we're going to hover around this a while because it's central to having this joy. He says, for me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Facing the very real reality and possibility of death, Paul says this, I'm not shaken. Because actually for the Christian to die is gain. And I thought about, I wonder what the atheist or the agnostic, I wonder what the philosopher or the philanthropist, I wonder about the humanist, I wonder about the hedonist. How would you fill in that blank? You see, none of those people apart from Christ can authentically say, for me, to die is gain. Only, my friends, 
The person who is united with Jesus in life and in death can actually with integrity say, for me to die is gain. You can say this as one of those other categories. To die is sad. You can say to die is to shrouded in mystery. I don't know. You can say to die is scary. You can say as a non-Christian, to die is to work one's life for all sorts of attainments only to lose them in an instant. You can say to die is to no longer have the opportunity of pleasure and companionship. But apart from Christ, you cannot say to die is gain. But in Christ, as a saint of God, you can say to die is gain. You can go to your deathbed, you can face an uncertain future, saying as a Christian, with integrity, to die is better. It's higher, it's gain, even over all of the good in this life. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul, sitting in that cell, writing those words, remembered the face of Stephen, the man they stoned as he watched over their coats and robes. See, the Bible describes Stephen's stoning and his death and his translation into eternity in a very interesting way. His face shone with the radiance of heaven. As I believe the Holy Spirit and maybe even angels ministered to him in those final moments of his life. And G, uh, Stephen says this as he's about to breathe his last breath. What, I wonder what we would say at the hands of violent killers in our last breath. He says this, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. That's unexpected. That's different. That comes from a different place, a different understanding of what life and death is all about. And Stephen's radiant face shone with the glory of God as he transitioned into the very presence of Christ. See, Stephen died for Christ. And in his death, he went to be with Christ forever. To die for Christ is to die for the greatest and most important and glorious reality there is. There's a lot of no, noble deaths you could die. You could die trying to save another person's life. You, you could die in a lot of ways. But to die a martyr's death is to die for the highest purpose in all the world. It's to bring others into the glory and companionship and fellowship of Jesus. Saint. You know what a saint is? It's a holy one who has citizenship in heaven, who belongs with God. We are servants and saints in Christ Jesus. We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is not here. We're just getting our mail here for a while. It's been forwarded here. Our place, our security, our mansion, if you will, our true and abiding joy is there. Our lives are hidden with Christ there. And we have to remember that. And Paul knows that as he faces certain death. Well, not certain. 
He's not sure. But he says, I know this. To live is Christ. To die is gain because I'm going to be with Christ. And he writes this back to a church that is full of fear about persecution, losing their status, the possibility of being tortured for the name of Christ, losing their homes, losing their families, having to go to jail. And he says, and to live is Christ. They can't take that from you. And to die is gain. He gives them an anchor to hold on to. To die in Christ is to be at the very right hand of the Father where there is fullness of joy forevermore. Uninterrupted, unbounded joy. We're going to pick up here next week. I want you to hover around these things. Would you commit Philippians 121 to memory? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And allow the Holy Spirit to seep that into your very soul, down into the deepest place of your heart in your identity, and grab hold of these two things, in this life, I'm a servant of Jesus, if you belong to Jesus. And in the next life, I'm a saint with eternal life. Would you bow with me as we go into a time of invitation? All of this is principle. It's, it's, it's words on a page. It's someone else's life. Is it your life? I need to ask you that. Can you say for to me, I know that I belong to Jesus. I've given my life to him. I have bowed the knee to him. I've publicly professed him like Lane today in believer's baptism. I've obeyed that command. I followed Jesus in that first step and I know that I know that I belong to Jesus. If you don't know that, I'm praying today that the Holy Spirit of God, that the risen Lord Jesus has revealed himself in your mind and in your life today. And you'll know what to do. That you're to follow Jesus. Submit to him. Give your life to him. If that's you today, you need to do what Lane did. You need to make that public. Profess Christ as Lord. Make your profession of faith. That helps us to remember, to realize further what our identity is in Christ. It's something you need to do. And I'd like to talk to you about that. Maybe after the service. Maybe you can shoot me an email or give me a call. We can get together. But you need to get that settled. That you're a servant of Christ. Find your identity, your purpose, your life, your joy in him. Get it settled. Submit your life to him. Christian, do you have joy that's unflappable? Or are you living a life that's full of anxiety, worry, fear, distress, and distraction? I, I think the words... From Paul to the Philippians are good for us today. I know that they are. Remember, realize, think deeply about this. That your identity is not in your job title. It is not in the number 
on your bank statement. It is not in your reputation among men. It's not any of those things. The core of your identity is belonging to Jesus as a servant and a saint. Maybe you're facing a hard diagnosis. You're facing something that seems like I'm coming to the end. You need not fear in Christ. You are a saint. Your name, your place, your life is hidden with him on high. Cling to that. Believe in that. Let the joy of that reality fill and flood your soul. If you would like to respond in some way today, come forward, make your profession of faith even here, even today, you can do that. If you'd like to come and pray, right where you sit if you want to just pray and ask the Lord to do a transformative thing in your soul. You do that now. Father, in this moment, it seems like you're at work, that we're listening, we're, we're thinking, we're open to being transformed as our minds are renewed around these realities. Pray that you would impress and burn these things into the deepest places of our lives. Restore us and make us new. Fill us with hope, life, joy, and peace, the fruits of the Spirit that abide in us. Fill us up with these things. Lord, today we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the words that show us the paths of life. Help us to walk therein. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.